Well, you know, there are some passages in Scripture that are really easy to understand. Uh, and there are some that'll, that are a little bit more difficult to work through than others. And I think we're in one of those passages this morning as we're working through the book of Exodus. We're in uh, Exodus 21, continuing in a section that is called the Book of the Covenant. Uh, And as we work through some of these laws, some of which I think we might find strange or even harsh, uh, I really pray that we'll be able to find them relevant to today. Uh, As I was going through this, I happened to just look at some of the recent news headlines. And here's some of the headlines that uh, really have been pretty recent. Man arrested in ex-wife's killing carries first homicide of 2019. Man taken to hospital after being shot at Raleigh apartment complex. Granville County Sheriff accused of urging a man to kill the deputy. Man used butcher knife to stab wife and three kids at Raleigh home. Fayetteville mom accused of selling her child for a drug debt. Father of five mauled to death by dogs. Fort Bragg soldier charged with kidnapping a 12-year-old. Fayetteville police reported a home invasion Thursday evening that left one intruder dead and another at large after being shot by the homeowner. This is recent news. Stories like this happen this every... Yeah, this is... Yeah, I mean, this hits close to home. Thanks for the ray of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> well, each of these raise serious questions about justice. I mean, we're going to look at this. Does a murderer deserve the death penalty? What is the proper sentence for a kidnapping? How much responsibility does someone have for an accidental death or an unintended injury? When does negligence become criminal? You know, it's hard to find agreement on these questions. Uh, I mean, we see it even in, a, in our justice system. A jury reaches a verdict, then a judge throws it out on a technicality. A judge make, makes a decision only to have that overturned on an appeal. But the Bible can help in all of this. It does not give us a complete code with regulations for every situation, but it provides kind of a set of examples, a set of cases to help us understand the divine principle of justice. You know, we, we looked last time when we started going through the Book of the Covenant about the slave laws. And what we're going to look at today really deals with three different types of crime. Capital crimes, personal injuries, and criminal negligence. And the most serious offenses are the capital crimes. Crimes that demand the death penalty. And we see here mentioned three different types of crimes. We've got murder, which is a crime against the sixth commandment out of Exodus 20.13 that says do not murder. 
Uh, and this here, it says, whoever strikes a person so that he dies must be put to death. In this case, justice demands strict retribution, a life for a life. Now, this is a hard text to address. And I feel like I need to pause here and make it clear. We've got to get this understanding that that these that God's death penalty commands are not about simply retribution. We've got to get in mind that they're about establishing a higher view of life, a high view, a high, placing a high value on life and a and the culture of life. In these verses, you're going to see a kind of a principle coming forth. You see, you see the principle set forth about the death penalty. You see an exception about the death penalty, and you also see a clarification. And I want you to understand that that all of this is about establishing a high view, a high value on life, and creating a culture that values life above most everything else. And when you read these verses, because we live in a culture that's filled with a whole lot of unbiblical sources and unbiblical thinking, and when we come to laws like this and verses like this, we're kind of stunned or even shocked by the demands of these verses. And some people go to the extent of thinking that the death penalty here even violates the sixth commandment. You know, God's commanded us not to kill, and so we don't have the right to to execute the death penalty as a uh, retribution for for murder. <clears throat> but this is a serious misunderstanding between the two sections here. The sixth commandment says we must not kill, talking about murder, whereas this is saying. If the murder does happen, you use a judicial uh, force. You use a, it's a judicial use of deadly force. So it's really, really two different things. Basically, one is murder and one is judicial execution. Two different terms. And the death penalty is the only way to preserve the value of human life. Really, any other punishment is inadequate, according to Scripture. You know, God said this to Noah after the flood. This is out of Genesis. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is out of Genesis 9, 5, and 6. And so this we see, every man is made in the image of God. And so the murder of another human being is an attack against God. And one thing to even note here is that it says that for every beast and every man... So God's saying that he even holds the animals as well as men accountable to him for the taking of a human life. 
that's how serious God values life. And we see here that this, this principle of capital punishment is grounded in the doctrine of man made in the image of God. Why is it wrong when a man willfully murders? Well, we can see why it's wrong. It says because he's made in the image of God. So capital punishment, even in the fallen world that we live in, is designed to uphold the sanctity of life. It's designed to uphold the preciousness of man in the image of God. Even though that image is defaced and corrupt uh, after the fall. And so we see how serious God values human life. And so we've got to come under this understanding that capital punishment reflects a high view, a high value of life, and not a low value of it. And something to, to take in mind, too, in this uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, capital punishment uh, in the cultures that surrounded Israel, capital punishment was only warranted if you murdered somebody of a higher class, not of a lower class. But here we see in Scripture that the Bible, that God values all human life. All human life is precious because we're made in the image of God. Life is precious. It's not based on class, gender, or your position inside or outside of the womb. Life is precious. And once the death penalty is carried out, well, it can never be undone. And this means that no one should ever be executed unless guilt is certain. And God's law gave careful safeguards to protect the innocent from being put to death. For example, no one could be executed on the testimony of a single witness. You know, in the case of, of murder, the Bible calls for the death penalty. However, for that penalty to be just, it must be administered justly. This means having fair trials that reach the correct verdict uh, in a legal system that is free from any type of bias and free from other forms of injustice. So that is addressing murder. And some people get killed by accident. And this calls for a different approach to the justice. And God's law here made a distinction between intentional and unintentional crimes. It says, but if he did not intend any harm, and yet God caused it to happen by his hand, I will appoint a place where you may flee. If a person schemes and willfully acts against his neighbor to murder him, though, you must take him from my altar to be put to death. And so what is addressed here in, in Exodus 21, 13, and 14 is that in the heat of an argument, or perhaps in self-defense, a man is killed. But it was unintentional. And it means that, that you know, in the providence of God, it was an accident. Maybe an axe head flew off its handle and hit the man in the head. You know, this could happen. But you've got to keep in mind in this culture, we've got to 
keep in mind, in this culture, uh, it was an honor culture. You killed my brother, even though it was an accident. You have dishonored the family name. I'm going to come after you. I will dishonor you. You slap my mama, you better watch out. You know, it was that attitude. Uh, made me think of the stories of the Hatfield and McCoy feud. You know, if someone was dishonored or hurt, someone from the aggrieved family, they were called the Avenger of Blood. They would immediately go after the person that caused the death to avenge the family name, to kill him. It was a blood feud. Private justice, you know, social justice was not terribly high developed in this culture. And so family justice, vigilante law, blood feuds were common. But what it's saying here is if you kill somebody accidentally or not, the Lord had appointed cities of refuge that you could run to. And so before the enraged family member who's out to get you could get to you, you could go to a sanctuary city scattered throughout Israel. And it was a place for cooler heads to prevail, where a trial and judicial sentencing could take place. And you know, when the when a killer reached the city of refuge, he would run to the sanctuary and put his put his hands on the altar of God. And he could not be touched until the authorities had a chance to investigate his crime properly. And after after due process, if they found he was innocent, this wrongdoer was allowed to live. But if the crime was deliberate, not even the altar could save him. You know, there's a notable example of this from, from Israel's history. Joab had sought protection from, from, Solomon by, from Solomon by seizing the horns of God's altar. But Joab had shed innocent blood. And so the king's men hauled him off and justly put him to death. Now, the, the next level of capital crime may seem surprising. This is in uh, 21.15 and going on to 17. Whoever strikes or attacks his father or his mother must be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother must be put to death. Wow. Notice something here, though. It doesn't say just for the father. The father and the mother are on equal footing. Women received equal protection under God's law. But notice that this does not necessarily involve murder. And yet, it still demanded the death penalty. The, the Hebrew term here, though, that it's talking about, whoever strikes or attacks, is referring to a vicious assault against the parents. Basically, an attempted murder. I mean, and, and ordinarily, such a violent attack would only require the death penalty if the person got killed. But this crime was aggravated by an assault on parental authority. You know, the fifth commandment, as we've studied in the past, said, honor your father and mother. And if someone dishonored their parents so as to, to assault them and strike them with the intent to kill, 
they deserved to die. And while this law may seem harsh to us, it was for the preservation of life, for the preservation of the family, and for the protection of the nation at that time. And the death penalty was also applied when someone cursed his parents. And what this has in view is not a single act of disrespect, but a total opposition or, or repudiation of the parental authority. So it's to basically it's total rebellion, lifelong rebellion against authority. The man cursed his father and mother. When he did that, he disowned them. And to, to, to be more specific, he would treat them with such utter contempt that he refused to care for them in their old age. You know, uh, and, and this is the way that Jesus understood the law when he challenged the Pharisees. He says, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God has said, honor your father and mother. And the one who speaks evil of your father or mother must be put to death. But you say, he's speaking to the Pharisees, whoever tells his father and, and mother uh, what benefit you may have received a gift uh, from me, I have given it to the temple. So the Pharisees were saying, you don't need to take care of your parents in their old age as long as you give a gift to the temple. And yet Jesus is saying, this law reminds us we are to honor our parents. If we speak against them or strike them, we're guilty of a great sin against God. And if we fail to care for our parents, we curse, we curse them and violate the law of God. It also talks about kidnapping here. I mentioned this a couple of weeks back. Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. And so this law forbid, forbids any type of kidnapping. And what it has in mind is the slave trade. It rules out the evil sin of, of man-stealing. You know, to give a biblical example, this is exactly what the sin that Joseph's brothers committed when they sold him to the Midianites. And as far as God is concerned, such a, such a sin demands the death penalty. God does not tolerate free men to be turned into slaves against their will. Why? Every person is made in the image of God. And therefore in Israel it was illegal to, kid, to kidnap anyone rich or poor upon the pain of death. Now there's another level of the laws. And these are the personal injuries. Some laws that don't lead to death. Non-fatal injuries. Uh, and we see a... Uh, a principle of restitution here. People who injure others should provide their victims with some sort of compensation. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist and the injured man does not die but is confined to his bed, if he can later get up and walk around outside leaning on his staff, then the one who struck him will be exempt from punishment. Nevertheless, he must pay for his lost work time and provide for, let's say, complete recovery. So, in this case, 
a man tries to settle an argument by resorting to violence. Clenched fist, he grabs a rock or uses whatever's handy and strike the other man, strike his opponent in such a way to cause serious injury. Now, if the victim dies, we go back up to capital punishment. But if he survives, the man doesn't die, but the person that caused the injury has to pay for his hospital bill, has to pay for recovery, whatever it, whatever it is. You, know, you pay for the time that he's losing at work. If he's disabled, you're, you've got a responsibility to help. And this is according to God's law. He pays for the crime by compensating the victim for loss, for a loss of income, and by making sure that he receives the proper medical medical care. I mean, modern terms, this would be who committed the crime would pay workman's compensation and take care of the victim's medical bills. And this law reminds us not to resort to physical violence. You know, arguments seem to have a way of escalating, and once we get angry, there's no telling what we might do. But there is never any excuse for fist fighting, any such violence like that. We're never justified in using physical force to settle a personal dispute. And Scripture says, if you break the law, you must take full responsibility for whatever damage you cause. The right thing to do is make restitution. The next level talks about injury as well, but injury to a slave. When a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies under his abuse, the owner must be punished. However, if the slave can stand up after a day or two, the owner should not be punished because it is his owner's property. And then going on, when a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his tooth. So a man does not have the right to injure a slave in any way. If the slave died, boom, the man is guilty of murder. And killing a slave was a crap was a capital crime. Again, God values everyone's life. Now, if the slave lived, the owner would not be punished. And even though nothing's said about medical care here, it's kind of obvious that it would be in the the master's best interest to help the slave heal and get back to work. But what if the slave is permanently injured? Well, whether the injury was as serious as losing an eye or losing a tooth, the slave was set free. And the major difference here, this is a major difference between how slaves in Israel were treated versus the rest of the world. You know, in this case, remember I talked about this the last time, that the, the relationship between a slave master and the slave in Israel was that the, the slave master had a God-given uh, duty to protect the servant. And in this case, if he causes injury to the servant, losing an eye, losing a tooth, anything like that, he has uh, failed in his God-given duty to protect that servant. And in doing so, 
he is under obligation now to release that servant from any more servitude. And the law was intended to eliminate any type of physical abuse of slaves. Such a law in the culture at this time was unheard of, unparalleled. There's nothing in, in any documents of, of ancient literature that talk about slave rights compared to what we see in Israel. Again, the law is here in the Bible because everyone, slaves included at this time, are made in the image of God. Sometimes the person who got hurt during a fight would be an innocent bystander. And here the law says this, when a man, when men get into a fight and hit a pregnant woman, this is verse 22, so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury. The one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands. From him, uh, he must pay accordingly, according to judicial assessment. So if a pregnant woman was was struck in a way that induced labor, there's an obvious risk of injury or even death to both the mother and the child. If there was a serious injury, then the man who caused it would deserve strict judge justice. Uh, but even if the mother and child survived, the man still needed to pay a fine as determined by the elders in society. I mean, his rash and violent act had threatened two of the most vulnerable people in society, a mother and her unborn child. And this example here has many implications. I mean, it shows that God holds us responsible even when the damage we do is unintentional. I mean, presumably the men here were fighting but never intended to harm this innocent bystander. Yet they were out of control. And when that happens, people get hurt. And the person who hurt them is still guilty before God. And, I mean, this principle would apply today. Probably an easiest example would be a drunk driver who gets behind the wheel of an automobile and causes an accident. I didn't mean it, but the law says whether you meant it or not, you did it, and you have to make things right. And another implication in this example is that the unborn child deserves special protection. The law of God here imposed strict penalties on anyone who harmed an unborn child. It treated the injury of an unborn child the same way as it treated the injury of any other human being. The proper legal category for abortion murder. is murder with all the penalties that apply. And what these laws show us is that people who don't necessarily count uh, to us still count to God. The innocent bystander who's struck with a violent blow, the child ripped from his mother's womb, the slave beaten by his master, all of these people deserve special care. The unborn child is not a mass of tissue. The slave is not a piece of property. We're all made in the image of God. 
And since we all need protection, we all need to protect one another. And whenever anyone is harmed, Scripture calls out that justice should be done. And there's a there's a third category we've we've that we need to address as as we're looking through the law here, and that is criminal negligence. You know, we've we've talked about acts of violence that deserve the death penalty, accidents uh, that require restitution. And the third category as we look through the section is negligence. Sometimes people get hurt or even killed uh, when someone else failed to be careful. Uh, and the laws of negligence in Exodus 21 mainly have to do with, with animals. Animals are unpredictable and sometimes they attack without warning. It says here in verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned, and its meat may not be eaten, but the ox owner is innocent. That was pretty straightforward. An animal kills someone else, the animal has to die, but the animal's owner should not be punished. I mean, how could the, animal, how could the animal's owner know that the ox was going to act this way? But... There is a different scenario uh, when the animal is a known offender. However, if the ox was in the habit of goring and the owner had been warned and yet does not restrain it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox must be stoned and the owner must be put to death. If instead a ransom is demanded of him, he can pay a redemption for his life in the full amount demanded from him. If it gores a son or a daughter, he is dealt with according to the same law. If the ox gores a male or female slave, he must give 30 shekels of silver to the slave's master, and the ox must be stoned. So in each of these cases, the owner was held accountable because his animal had a history of wild acting, of goring. And the owner knew this. In fact, he had been notified that the animal was dangerous. And thus it was his responsibility to keep that animal pinned up or contained. And by failing to do this, he became liable for the wrongful death, even though he never intended to commit murder. And I guess the most obvious way to apply this is to say that uh, our animals are our responsibility. If they cause an injury, it's our fault. The deeper principle would be we are responsible for injuries that we should have prevented as well as the ones we actually cause. Uh, when an accident happens, people are going to say, it's not my fault, I didn't do it. Uh, but according to God's law, if we reasonably could have prevented the accident, then we do bear responsibility when it happens. So legal liability to use that term is a biblical principle and then according to God's law when this criminal negligence leads to a deadly accident then again justice demands the death penalty but in this case the law allowed a victim's family to show mercy by demanding restitution instead of 
retribution. Rather than executing the man who caused this, they could demand a ransom uh, uh, set by the town elders. Uh, Obviously, no one could bring the family member back, and no price would equal the value of even one life. But the payment of a ransom would at least acknowledge that the family had suffered a great loss. And this law shows how right it is for the families of victims to receive compensation after an accident, uh, especially when it's caused by someone else's negligence. And here's a key point. In the, again, in the ancient world surrounding Israel, the right of this type of a payment, this type of compensation, was only extended to men who owned property. However, in Israel, this applied to the sons and the daughters and even to the slaves. Again, equal justice for all. Here again, we see God honoring the dignity of every person made in his image, male and female and slave alike. The only difference here was in the case of a slave, the owner of the ox had to pay the slave owner an extra 30 shekels, which was the average price for a slave. 30 shekels. You realize that this figure is significant because when Judas betrayed Jesus, it was for 30 pieces of silver. The Son of God was sold for the price of a slave gored by an ox and left to die. That was the price that Judas paid to betray Jesus. But the price that Jesus paid was the one that measured his true worth when he died on that cross for our sins. The blood of Jesus infinitely more precious than the price uh, of 30 shekels of silver. That's the price that he paid for our salvation. Now the last two laws still deal with, with injuries, but injuries to animals. Uh, when a man uncovers a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must give compensation. He must pay money to the owner. But the dead animal becomes his. When a man's ox injures his neighbor's ox and it dies, they must sell the live ox and divide it pro- and divide its proceeds. They must also divide the dead animal. Again, if, however, it is known that the ox was in the habit of goring, yet its owner had not restrained it, he must compensate fully. The ox for ox and the dead animal will become his. So you can see kind of the familiarity. We're responsible not only for what we do, but for what we fail to do. You know, a man who digs a pit for a well is obligated to cover it up with a stone. If he fails to do this and an animal falls in, he's responsible for the death of that animal and must make restitution. It's easy to get lost in all these details of personal injury. But the basic principle is 
one that you may have heard of that says, let the punishment fit the crime. I think this comes clearly in the most famous verse from this passage. Really, verses 23 through 25. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Yes. Eye for an eye, right? These verses are famous because Jesus referred to them in his Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, at first it seems like Jesus is contradicting Moses. Is he saying that the book of the covenant that we've just walked through no longer applies? Well, I would say this can't be the right interpretation because earlier in the same sermon, Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so it helps for us to know what this original law meant when it says an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. This is usually known as the law of retaliation. And there's a term for it, a, a Latin term called lex talionis, the law of retaliation. But the primary purpose here was to stop people from taking revenge. The law of retribution was for the elders of the city or the community to apply because they were Israel's divinely appointed judges. So this means that private citizens did not have any right to carry out vengeance on people who hurt them. And in the case of a personal in injury, the penalties were not allowed to be excessive. I mean, usually when people get hurt, they want the people who injured them to suffer more than they did. I want them to suffer. I want them to hurt. But God's law did not allow the violence to escalate. The punishment had to fit the crime. And how was it carried out? Well, it was carried out if there was murder, life for life. But what about an eye for an eye and all the rest of this? I mean, did God really intend for people to be mutilated? Well, the Jewish rabbis believed that these were the maximum penalties and that ordinary cases would be settled by the, by the victim given some kind of financial compensation. You know, the context here needs to be considered. With the exception of the death penalty, all these legal remedies in Exodus 21 are financial rather than physical. And, you know, if we're to understand this correctly, we can look... Uh, in Numbers as well, where Numbers says, uh, talks about a law that says you're not to accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who's guilty of killing someone. He must be put to death. And the implication here is that although a ransom could not be paid in the case of murder, it could be accepted for any lesser crimes. And therefore, this lex talionis was not so much a law of retribution as it was a law of compensation. 
Whenever pain was inflicted, damages were awarded. Now, at the time of Jesus, this interpretation was being challenged. Some Jewish leaders were saying that the law required strict judgment without any room for mercy. An eye for an eye, they said, and that's all there is to it. As far as they were concerned, that was the minimum penalty, not the maximum. And some people in the time of Jesus were using this law of retaliation as an excuse for taking private vengeance. Their attitude was, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you right back even harder. I want you to pay. Well, Jesus corrected the religious leaders by not overruling the law, but by correcting their interpretation of it. As we remember when we went through the Ten Commandments, this is what Jesus always did with the law of Moses. He explained it for the people who had forgotten what it truly meant, what it truly required. And when it came to this, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. A blow on the right cheek, you've got to understand, was more than an injury. It was also an insult because such a blow was struck with the back of the hand. Whack! And most people would fight back. Some would justify it by saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But according to Jesus, that's not what the law meant at all. The law was actually about making things right when we hurt someone else. Not about getting what we have coming when someone harms us. Think about it. When we hurt someone else, when we're in the wrong, we don't go around quoting an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, do we? We only do it when we think someone else needs to be punished for what they did to us. And Jesus is saying, no, you've got it backwards. When we're in the wrong, we need to make things right. And we ought to do everything justice requires. But when somebody else does wrong, we do not have to insist on strict judgment. Instead, we have an opportunity to offer mercy. Now, commentators are going to surround this verse, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, with a thousand qualifications. For instance, Jesus did not mean soldiers who had the right to defend their country in a just war. Uh, nor does it mean that criminals should not be brought to justice. Uh, but the point here is when we are wronged, rather than seeking justice or demanding justice, we should be willing to suffer injury so that we can show mercy. This is what Jesus calls us to do because this is what he did for us. Jesus suffered all kinds of injuries and insults on his way to the cross. Did he demand a wound for a wound or a bruise for a bruise? No. He said, I gave my back to those who beat me and I gave my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. 
I did not hide my face from scorn and from spitting. And when He died on the cross for our sins, He said, Father, forgive them. So when Jesus asks us to do what seems impossible, giving up our right to make people pay for what they've done to us, He's only asking us to do what He did for us. Show mercy. And when He asks us to show mercy, He's only asking us to give what He's given to us. Rather than exacting strict justice down to the last tooth, God has shown us His mercy. He has forgiven our sins And He's granted us the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And this has profound implications when we have conflicts with one another. When someone hurts us, what should we do? Now, mercy. We live in a time when mercy has triumphed over judgment. Will we seek vengeance or will we show mercy? Think about it. If everybody demanded an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this world will be full of blind, toothless, wounded cripples. But you know, God has been so merciful to us that we can show His mercy to others. And that's what we're called to do. Even as we walk through and look at these laws, the ultimate point is we are called to show His mercy to others. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. For we trust, we believe that every bit of it instructs us and teaches us It teaches us who Christ is. Thank you for the things that we learn from your law. Lord, shape us and conform us to your kingdom rather than to the corrupt values of this world. We pray that as we would hear your word and receive it, it would bear fruit in our hearts and lives. Make us the agents and instruments of mercy, of mercy and grace in your hand, Father. We ask this and we give you thanks. Amen.